Hello and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. This is episode number 16. We are recording this on September 8th, 2019. I am Tim and joining me as always from the deepest, darkest depths of Pennsylvania, Major Tom. Good morning, Tom. How are you today? Oh, what ho there. I, I thought about doing this entire episode in character <laughs> as someone from the from 1776 just to get a true flavor for this movie. But I feel like people would stop listening immediately. They they probably would. So for those of you who are still with us, <laughs> fifty <laughs> seconds in, uh, they, thank you for sticking it out because Tom is absolutely not going to do that because I wouldn't even stay around. <laughs> My short lived Revolutionary War LARPing experiment is over. <laughs> there it is. That's that's it's all over. <laughs> Gee, Tom, when was the last time you did a Revolutionary War reenactment? You know, that's typically uh, odd Tuesdays of the month, ah, so okay. I get it in twice a week, the tri-corner hat, I'll give <laughs> Evelyn, my daughter, a little flute, and she'll play it, and, you know, do the whole thing up really nicely here. There you go. Yeah, it's, that's, <laughs> it's all good. Shut off the main breaker to the house and just light candles and just really try to make it authentic. That's uh, what they now call an immersive experience, Tom. That's right. That's, yeah, it's it's all good. Well, so the, the the cool thing is, yes, we're we're talking about the Patriot here, and uh, you know, we're actually both. I, I think we're kind of fortunate that that we both live in areas that have a fair amount of Revolutionary War history. You know, we have uh, I've got a number of Revolutionary War forts around us. Fort Stanwix um, is like 15 minutes away from me, and Fort Ticonderoga is about an hour or so away. I've uh, got some interesting history up here. Spent a lot of time in Vermont. They've got a lot of um, a lot of Revolutionary War history, and so we 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 tend to think in terms of the Revolutionary War. Um, I, I, maybe it's just me because I am a Northeasterner, but a lot of the stuff happens in the Northeast. You know, you've got the Boston Tea Party, you've got all that kind of stuff. Um, but there's obviously a lot that is rooted in Virginia and in the Carolinas, and um, so this this movie's going to take us down to colonial South Carolina. And I'm from the South. For those that don't know me, I while I've settled down in Pennsylvania and can appreciate the the revolutionary roots here in between Eastern Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, you had uh, Brandywine Battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think I grew up going. I, I my grandparents lived. Their apartment complex was basically a walk through the woods to the uh, the, the Guilford Courthouse battlefield, and that's where we would play. We would cool. go and, and play, and then I would run away when my older cousin would tell me about ghost stories of dead revolutionary or British soldiers <laughs> that were floating around the battlefield still. But uh, I really grew up in this area. The, the sort of seminal <clears throat> battle in this movie, the Battle of Cowpens, was an hour and a half away from my house. Hmm. My active duty army stations were all... Uh, in areas that were heavily steeped in Revolutionary War type history, so it's it's been something that's been infused in my life, and it's uh, it, it's strange to think of it any other way. It's just a really neat time period. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So it's it's something that we haven't uh, encroached upon yet in our series here, Dispatches from the Front, and 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 actually we we uh, before the show we were trying to consider what our next film was that we were going to cover and we're going to venture into world war one. Uh, but more about that later. So talking about the Patriot, uh, the Patriot was released in June of 2000. 
It was written by uh, Robert Rodap, who uh, wrote Saving Private Ryan, which we've covered. Uh, he wrote Thor The Dark World. We're not going to hold that against him. Uh, and he wrote the Falling Skies TV show. Did you watch Falling Skies, Tom? I did not, but it's one of those that's on my short list when I'm due up for a new show to get hooked on. It's a seriously good show. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's, uh, you know, really, I think, good TV sci-fi show, alien invasion kind of stuff. Good times. Good times. Uh, directed by Roland Emmerich, uh, which I think a lot of folks are familiar with. He has a uh, quite a filmography going back a few decades. He did Stargate. He did Independence Day, uh, Day After Tomorrow. And he's also directing the uh, Midway film, which is coming out later this year, which I'm really excited uh, to, to be seeing. So, I mean, it's, um, you know, y- yes, we did have the Battle of Midway film, which was done in the 60s, I think. Yeah fantastic movie yeah yeah really good movie uh so i'm i'm really uh i'm looking forward to the the treatment that this iteration is is going to give that battle with um you know a little more technology special effects kind of stuff and and i think um speaking of immersion i think you know immersing us a little bit more in in that battle uh which was pretty incredible so uh definitely a noted director Emmerich is one of those directors where I remember growing up with with movies like Independence Day and Stargate. I mean, he could do no wrong. Yeah. And those I, I realize those movies don't all hold up a hundred percent, but they were great for their time. Mm-hmm. And and the problem with Emmerich and and I hope he rectifies this. He's sort of like like a streaky baseball player because he'll have some really, really great movies. And then there's some real duds on his resume. And I watched the trailer for Midway and I got so excited, but I saw his name and I was like, oh man, it's a coin flip Mm -hmm. at best. And I hate to think that way going into a movie, but he's gotten really, I think starting with day after tomorrow into these like bombastic, uh, like world destruction type movies. Not that Independence Day is any different, really, <laughs> but uh, these like natural disaster type. I, th- I think there was another one he did where, you know, the concept was was some sort of like global ecological disaster type thing, a, a big storm or something like that. Yeah, it was like 2012, um, I think. Was it? Was that the movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's also physically incapable of making a movie less than two hours long. So you know when you're going and buying a ticket for an Emmerich movie, <laughs> you're going to get your money's worth in terms of time spent in the theater. And The Patriot's no different. I think its runtime is like two hours, 45 minutes, something like that. Yeah, he, he definitely does do, uh, I, I think, films that could easily be called kind of epic, um, both in terms of their duration and their content. I mean, there's, you know, things like, uh, you know, Stargate independence day, day after tomorrow. Um, even this movie to an extent, I'll kind of have like a, a little warming up period, like that first, maybe first half of the first act. And then after that, you're just like running. Um, you're just constantly running and running and running. There's, there's a lot of action, really, really fast story beats that come up with it. So, yeah, he's he's definitely had some films that have essentially been duds. They haven't worked out so well, but he does have some good ones, and and I think they hold up to a reasonable extent. I mean, I actually just watched Independence Day uh, a few days ago. It happened to be on TV, and it's like oh, I haven't seen this in you know maybe a year or so, 
and you know aside from like old cell phone technology it pretty much still holds up you know it's uh it's it's still pretty any solid. movie with randy quaid is automatically a step ahead that's true that's that's very true that's very true <laughs> all right tom uh you want to take us through the uh the plot summary here of the patriot yeah we're, our setting is 1776 when the movie starts out, and we're in colonial South Carolina. Not the best of the two Carolinas, but it is a Carolina. Uh, widowed farmer and veteran of the French and Indian War, Benjamin Martin, stands opposed to colonial military action against the British Empire until a British officer finds him harboring injured rebel soldiers and kills one of his sons, takes another prisoner, and burns down his home. We call that the trifecta of war crimes. Uh, this spurs Martin into action, forming a band of guerrilla militia operating outside the South Carolina regulars and causing frustration for the Redcoats. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, when, when I put together the, the plot summary for this, I'm like, well, how, how far down the rabbit hole do we want to go with this? And it's it's one of those balances, I think, after um, after a number of episodes of recording this show, it's like, well, we get into a lot of the actual juicy plot discussion uh, as, as we kind of go along with this. So I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to give it all away. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. Well, you've got, so there's an interesting bit of, of, uh, a twist on history with this movie. It's historical fiction, like many of the movies that we've covered. And it may come as no surprise that Benjamin Martin's character is not fully based on a real character. He himself was certainly not a, a real character. There's no Benjamin Martin, that namesake, that matches what happens in this movie. But he's loosely based on Francis Marion, who's otherwise known as the Swamp Fox. But And, I, and I'm sure Francis Marion was rolling around in his grave when they made this decision <laughs> for the sake of a more dramatic story. They actually fictionalized the character and sort of beefed it up. Which not that uncommon when you talk about movies that are being adapted like this, but uh, he had to be, you know, sitting wherever he's sitting, saying like, "Oh, my life wasn't traumatic enough." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, a li- li- little bit of a bummer. I, I, yeah, it's it's Hollywood. It's it's what they do. Uh, they- you do have you do have. I would say it handrails history reasonably. So it's not like yes. you watch this movie. And it just totally flips uh, the, the American Revolution on its head. I mean, you've got some major players like Cornwallis mm-hmm. involved and, and uh, you know, like the Battle of Cowpen. So you've got some sort of high watermarks. Yeah. But it gives you enough sense that, that you can suspend your reality a little bit for a couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is grounded with some of those major things. Um and uh, I, I mean, even the the nickname of Francis Marion being the Swamp Fox. And in this film, we see that they kind of set up like a, a base of operations, if you will, for for their guerrilla group uh, at this old mission, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in a swamp. So they're still pulling from that story of Francis Marion uh in in a few ways but yeah they've obviously um done a lot of of dramatic retelling of it the ghost is a more dramatic nickname than the swamp fox as it is so, yes <laughs> i know i know mr marion couldn't control his nicknames but if only he was nicknamed a little bit more dramatically alexa also wanted to talk 
Oh, that's what that was. Okay. I was I was wondering what I was hearing in the background. Amazon ought to chip in some sponsorship dollars for the, the sort of airtime that she gets on our episode. Oh, totally. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so just wanted to mention before we jump too much further into it, uh, you can find The Patriot on uh, Amazon Prime. On uh, You can get it off of iTunes, of course, Google Play Movies. Couple- it's on the PlayStation Store. PlayStation Store, so a couple of other places running, you know, basically I'm seeing $2.99 and $3.99 are the, the, the prices I'm seeing in terms of uh, where to get it. And and you can find it on TV periodically. I'm, I'm actually uh, just looking at um, the guide right now, uh, IFC, which is I love seeing movies on IFC because they don't edit them. Um, so even something that might be rated R, like this movie, they don't cut stuff from it. Uh, and BBC America. So even just over the course of the next uh, two or three weeks, you know, it's showing I think four times uh, between I IFC be and BBC if, America. If BBC edited it and suddenly the Americans lose, it. <laughs> and it's like a man in the high castle situation at the end where <laughs> oh, totally. the British rule over everything. Totally, they 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 uh, <laughs> twist the story to make Tavington the hero. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, he's the, the king of Ohio <laughs> at the end. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Speaking of, the, the movie has a really, really good cast. I mean, every time I watch this, it's it's like you know watching a who's who of uh, of actors that will go on to pretty notable careers. Mm-hmm. But you've got Mel Gibson in the lead role, obviously, and he perpetually looks like this. I, th- I think you could see him in a movie right now, and he would look the same. This movie is almost twenty years old. Uh, a very young looking Heath Ledger plays his son, his eldest son, Gabriel mm-hmm. Martin. Uh, Jason Isaacs plays probably the, the most famous secondary role in the movie, Colonel Tavington mm-hmm. and the, the uh, notorious British officer. You've got Chris Cooper in there as Colonel Burwell, uh, Benjamin Martin's uh, friend and contemporary in the uh, the Colonial Army. You've got Tom Wilkinson playing a phenomenal role as Cornwallis. He's probably, other than Mel Gibson uh, and Jason Isaacs, my favorite part. I mean, I when you think of Cornwallis, if you hear the stories or you listen, I, I go to a battlefield or read a story, and like he's who I picture as Cornwallis from here on out. Ever since seeing this movie, it, he, he really is, and he drives like in. <laughs> He doesn't have a whole lot of on-screen time, but he act, he he drives, I think, good story, and actually a yeah. measure of of kind of comedy relief centers around him, like really subtly. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you talk about the dogs, and and we're going to talk about the the his his ship and that. So it's like these these really like fairly, at least to us, humorous things end up centered around him. Yeah, when he just like exudes the sort of like pompous arrogance yes. of a British officer that you would expect. Like I just love the scene, not to jump ahead, where he's he's like looking at the map and the land grant that the king is prepared to get of him at the end of the war, and he's just so proud. And they're not even you know close to defeating the colonials quite yet at that point. But uh, yeah, he just drips every bit of Cornwallis that you would expect. Oh, totally. You've also got a young. Adam Baldwin playing Captain Wilkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my wife had forgotten that he was in this movie. And we've been watching, we're big fans of The Last Ship oh, yeah. on yeah. TBS. And so uh, Adam Baldwin is also in that, but he plays a U.S. Navy captain. Mm-hmm. 
And I turned to her, and she's like, oh, he's a real asshole in this movie. And I was like, don't worry, don't worry. He survives another 200 or so years and joins the U.S. Navy That's right. and redeems himself. So it's okay. Very and true. then you've got, uh, and I'm going to butcher his name, but Donal Logue playing Dan Scott. Yeah, you know, and I, I put him in there, um, and I certainly don't mean to to diminish his standing um, as an actor. I mean, he's not very well known. Uh, but if anyone has uh, watched uh, Gotham over the last, whatever, six or seven years, uh, he plays, um, oh my gosh, uh, he plays Gordon's partner and his name now, his character name is uh, Harvey. Uh, so he, he's in, so like, and I totally forgot he was in this. So when we were watching this, um, in, in, in prep for, for this particular show, I'm like, oh yeah, Hey, there's Harvey. I forgot he's in this. And, and <laughs> there's a bunch of other familiar faces in this movie. I mean, actors that yeah. w- we didn't list, but there you see them and you're like, I I've seen him somewhere before and I've seen him somewhere before. So there's a lot of familiar faces. It's a really good cast, I think. And they gel very well together. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Tom, you know, as you mentioned, basically the the whole thing, the whole film starts off with um, kind of reflecting on this is early in the Revolutionary War, and uh, South Carolina is is basically holding their referendum on are we going to join this colonial militia uh, in a a taking a military stance against uh, against the British Empire. And uh, so they introduce Mel Gibson's character, Benjamin Martin, and and he gets called to the Capitol and they have this, you know, kind of town hall kind of thing. And they and they talk it through. And, and, and he's this noted war hero. They kind of keep dropping little hints of, well, you know, hey, wow, Mar- Benjamin Martin's here, the famous Benjamin Martin, uh, the hero of Fort Wilderness from the French and Indian War. And, and they they kind of keep throwing this stuff on and you're thinking, Oh, well, yeah, he's totally going to say, let's, let's go, let's go get him." And, uh, he's very reluctant about it. And he basically says, Hey, look, I'm, I'm a, uh, I'm a widowed father of what's he have seven kids. Yes. My God, man, use some birth control. Um, (laughs) (laughs) the full quiver movement at its finest. And, uh, his wife had passed, I think, in uh, childbirth. No, not in childbirth of their last daughter. Or did they even no, say well, how it she? It could died? have been, I, but she died. I think based on her gravestone, three years before this movie, so in yeah. seventeen seventy-three. And uh, so you know, he's he's a farmer now. He's he's uh, and a um, and, and a carpenter, and he's taking care of his kids, and 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 that's that. And he doesn't want to go back into war. And so he votes against this, but the referendum still passes. Uh, his oldest son, Gabriel Martin, who's played by Heath Ledger, he is basically in line to sign up for the Colonial Army before the measure itself even passes. And, um, you know, he's he's bound to to, to go do this and, um, and, and fight for the Colonials. And... Uh, you know, we kind of fast forward through through a bit of time. There's a local, I, I don't know, even know that it's necessarily a battle. It was more, it seemed to be more of a skirmish. You get, uh, uh, so Gabriel ends up coming back. He was a messenger and uh, he's injured and, and basically said, well, I, I'm going to go 
back home and kind of recuperate and, and you know, for, for a day or two before I continue on. And uh, in the meantime, other colonial soldiers who are injured and then even a few redcoats end up coming in um, and uh, uh, the Martins basically turn their home into an aid station, which is then found out by uh, Jason Isaac's character, Colonel Tavington, who comes in. Aid station for both sides, mind yes. you. It's not, yeah. you know, he's not just harboring a bunch of Americans. Right, yeah. And so, you know, Tavington um, it doesn't even really recognize that fact. He just holds that, uh, you know, you're, you're harboring insurgents. And uh, so he orders all of the injured soldiers killed, finds, uh, so one of his people finds uh, Gabriel's uh, messenger satchel. So he knew then he was dealing with a, with a messenger who he, of course, branded a spy, uh, captures Gabriel. Uh, basically with the intent of um, of having him executed as a spy and um, burns down the Martin's home and uh, and and also in the process ends up uh, killing one of Benjamin's uh, younger sons who wanted to who basically was standing up to Colonel Tavington in defense of, of his brother uh, who had been taken captive. So um, this then kind of uh, uh, flips the switch in uh, good old Ben's brain and turns him back into the <laughs> savage hero of Fort Wilderness with his uh, tomahawk and uh, grabs a couple of muskets, throws them at his sons and says, let's go kill us some redcoats. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. I. So one thing I wanted to touch on is this the effectiveness here of this broken man haunted past type mm -hmm. story. Cause certainly the Patriots, not the first movie to have uh, had this sort of arc for its main character. How effective do you think it is here? So ben, like, the, the very first shot in the movie is Ben putting away his tomahawk in this footlocker and closing it away and, and sort of then focusing seemingly finally on his, his new life of, of, furniture making and <laughs> field plowing and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, it, it definitely works. It's, it's a trope that works, like you said, and it, it comes up in a lot of movies and TV shows and that kind of stuff. Someone who wants to put their past behind them because of whatever trauma or memories it brings up, um, balanced with wherever they are now. And, and as we said, he has seven kids to take care of. He's on his he, he's on his own. His wife had passed away, um, although he definitely seems to have the hots for his wife's sister. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's another thing worth bringing up. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, you you kind of once they tell more about his story, you you definitely sympathize with his standing in this. Um, but then you also understand why he doesn't about face on it after, you know, one of his sons is killed and the other is taken prisoner bound for uh, execution. Yeah. And I, I think it's, while it's not a new trope, it's one of my favorite aspects of this movie. I think it's just really well done. And that's probably in large part, Mel Gibson's skill as an actor. Mm -hmm. I go back to that. There's that episode of South park where they're going through these directors and actors trying to find somebody that can help them in their quest. And nobody really wants to call on Mel Gibson because he's 
portrayed as being real crazy in the mm-hmm. the entire series. But he does his job, and they're like, "Damn, does he know a good character development?" <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's and he's totally so great true. in this. I, the, the I love the scene early on where Thomas, the son that ends up getting killed by Tavington, is has gone through and found into the Footlocker mm. and is messing with his stuff. Mm-hmm. And Ben comes in and just shuts it, and he's like, "This, you have no idea, like what you're messing yeah. with." Like, yeah. It's it's clear that he has not shared any stories from his time uh, in the French and Indian war with any of his kids to include Gabriel. It's a time of his life. That's just totally boxed off. And the movie I think uses that really, really effectively. Like he's not perfectly adapted to, to this new life. I mean, you see that in him kind of like comically falling out of the, uh, the chair he's trying to build. And he's got this whole like trash pile of (laughs) broken chairs. Um, but it's something he's bound and determined to, to move away from. And it, it dovetails so perfectly, I think, with the beginning of the war, because you've got this this pull throughout the whole movie of family versus duty. And I want to talk about that probably in a minute. But, yeah. Um, and there's a the lot of that. The, there, there's, a, oh, yeah. there's a lot of that. And the thing is, it's not just in this opening act of the movie either. That's a thread. That's a thread that carries yeah. on. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things when he makes his appearance in Charleston in front of the, the council there, everybody, nobody there questions those who know don't question his military chops. And so I think he recognizes the weight of his voice when he speaks. Mm-hmm. And it makes a real impact on the council there when he says, I'm not willing to, to go to war again. We can exhaust and continue to attempt to exhaust all diplomatic methods, but it's just not worth it. And it's, it's funny. Cause I think any, uh, you, you interview anybody that's, uh, you know, gone to a combat zone or whatever, and you, you take their pulse before they had kids mm. and a family mm-hmm. and after, and I guarantee you, you're going to get two differing viewpoints. Yeah. And that's like Ben embodies that as a young man, he went off and and did what he needed to do at Fort Wilderness and probably didn't think too much of it. But now he's got stakes. Now he's got more chips in the game. And he recognizes that this war is not going to be fought out on the fringes of America. It's going to be fought, as he says, in their front yards, in their fields and in towns. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite scenes in this entire movie is you they're they're sitting inside you know sort of at dusk and you hear cannon fire and thomas is asking him how far away it is and you can clearly see that ben is lying he's like oh that's they're they're really far away yeah those are like british six pounders (laughs) they're they're far off and they go onto the porch and they eventually see this battle kind of spill out onto their front lawn yeah so to speak and it's just such a beautifully shot moment but that's his entire. It's like his fear is is like coming to to pass right before his eyes. Well, and he also sees uh, you. You made a, a, an interesting point about kind of the the age or or, or generational um, type of of uh, perspective. I think on on wanting to fight, and he sees, I think, some of himself in Gabriel, which is why yeah. he's so opposed to Gabriel joining up. And and he also obviously knows the 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 horrors of war, 
not only in what you face, but also in what it can do to you, which is really the theme that weighs most heavily for Benjamin is, is what war did to him. I mean, when they actually, when he actually goes into, this is what happened at Fort Wilderness, um, which is pretty damn brutal. (laughs) You know, it's a, it's, it's a hell of a story that he tells. And, you know, you, you, you uh, put a line here in the show notes, the hero of Fort Wilderness or monster of war. And I, I think that whole discussion comes up when he's talking to um, uh, the Frenchman. Yeah. I cannot remember his name. And I'd probably... Villanueve? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, so Villanueve is is very um, reluctant, I guess, uh, around Benjamin is, is, is I don't know, the, the, the first word that comes to mind with it. <laughs> until you know and 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 benjamin like tries to have conversations with him you know like hey kids right you know and right a couple of these like passing comments and he's completely ignored until it finally comes it comes to a head in in when they're hanging out in the swamp uh you know between skirmishes and they actually sit down and talk about it and he's like look this this is what happened this is what we were faced with. This is what I did. And it was freaking terrible. And for as terrible as it was, we were celebrated as heroes for it. And it's wrong. Yeah. And, and, and so you can tell that he just still continues to, to struggle with that. But then it's amazing that switch that goes when, you then see him in a battle and especially when he's got that freaking tomahawk in one hand and it's like, oh, man, it's, it's, it's nuts. And it, it's, it's funny. I mean, you know, you, you, you mentioned other Mel Gibson movies, uh, Braveheart. If you look at the back of the jacket for, for Braveheart, it is, it's rated R obviously. And the, the statement next to it is rated R for brutal medieval warfare. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Patriot is rated R, and I don't know what the particular statement is there. And, and obviously, it's not medieval warfare, but by God, it's practically the same thing. I mean, yeah. you know, he's still hacking people apart in this movie. Yeah. When there's such a, like, <clears throat> to, to the point about Gabriel, it it conveys how, you know, how he realizes that everything that, that Ben was telling him was true really effectively in his there's sort of a montage where he's in battle uh a friend of his gets shot and and narrated over this montage of of scenes is him writing letters back to his uh to, mm. mainly i think to thomas about how crummy this whole experience is mm-hmm. and how jarring it all is and so i think by the time they get reunited the flame that is driving Gabriel is still lit very much oh, yeah. in in a much different way than it than Ben is motivated, but I think he's he's gotten a little bit of a lot of taste of of real life, and I think he he respects Ben's viewpoint a lot more at that point because he's seen that it it it's played out very truthfully. But there's this moment like Tavington does like the trifecta of things that that you know one can do at at ben's uh little plantation house there the house is burning he's got his dead son 
in his arms and he looks up and it's just this like this is like the beauty of Mel Gibson but it's a literal switch that's been flipped in him and he doesn't even hesitate he doesn't like stop to bury Thomas's body he just like lays him down runs into the burning house goes straight to his war chest <laughs> and comes out and his two young younger sons who must be you know, I don't know, seven and nine or seven and ten. Pretty much. Uh, yeah, he just hands them muskets and he's like, let's go, follow me. Yep, let's go get them. <laughs> <laughs> have, we, have I taught you how to set up a hasty ambush yet? Because that's what we're about to do. Yeah, and so it's, and, it's, it's crazy because this is where it goes. And so they, they, they basically find Tevington's, um, Tevington's group, which has uh, Gabriel along as as a hostage and um they find some some high ground in in the in a wooded area and he sets his sons up in certain places and gives them a little bit of instruction and you know do, do you know how to uh, how to recognize a, a, a british officer yes sir <laughs> and uh you know and so he's like don't don't start until i do and uh I the, the 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 kids do great. I mean, because kind of initially you're really concerned about the kids, and the kids are are freaking awesome. And it's almost too bad that like that whole story leaves after this scene because it's like, no, they should totally sign these kids. I I'm not encouraging yeah, right. children in warfare, but <laughs> holy crap, these kids are are like solid shots. Um, Aim small, miss small. Yeah, yeah, and. So then it just starts this whole thing, and and yeah, I mean like solid ambush. Um, I mean it's it's only it's him and his two sons against uh, twenty some odd, uh, twenty some odd people, and taking out the officers uh, early on because that promotes confusion, and then you have a lack of leadership, and uh, and the whole thing works, and he takes out everybody and rescues Gabriel. Yeah, and it's hard to tell whether at this point, I think this point early on, he's still primarily motivated by this desire to save his family. I mean, totally. This is, this is partially a revenge move, but I mean, this is a desperate attempt to save his son because he's, Tavington's last word, you know, he, he's a spy, he's going to be executed. Mm -hmm. There's no trial, there's no nothing. Right. It just is what it is. And, uh, you know, he knows that if he doesn't succeed in this, his son's going to be killed and, and uh you know, that'll be that. And I just love that, like, with minimal conversation, he sets up, you know, close to a textbook near ambush <laughs> and then finishes it off melee style. And his sons are just, like, watching, like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> Dad? <laughs> he was just you? yelling at us earlier this morning about taking a swimming break. Like, <laughs> where did this guy come from? And my favorite this part is, in that this whole is the scene, guy who can't build a rocking chair, but by God, he's dismantling humans. Man, he could put a yeah, he could put a tomahawk <laughs> on a dime. Uh, my favorite scene that that one British soldier has Gabriel sort of held hostage, and it lasts all of like 1.5 seconds. Yeah, like Ben doesn't even hesitate; he just hurls the tomahawk into his forehead. Yeah. <laughs> And even Gabriel's like, "What the hell, man!" Like, which, which, <laughs> the thing is, that could have totally happened in this or in uh, a Lethal Weapon movie. Yeah, e either way, <laughs> like you said, Mill Gibson is very transportable uh, in yeah, in any exactly. of these things. So, this uh, whole instance, and and like you said, that that Ben 
saving his family, that was what really prompted Ben to take this particular action. But then he realized, I I think this also made him realize, look, we, we have to fight. We have to be in this. And so then he started to, to, he pulled together this group of people, which through the period of time ended up growing and they continued on with these guerrilla tactics and which is something that, that wasn't seen too often. I mean, both sides did it, but it wasn't seen too often because it was uh, particularly in this period of time, it was very ungentlemanly uh, to do. I mean, you, you see the very traditional army on army battlefield tactics, which is line up shoulder to shoulder and just stand there and fire at each other, which is like totally mind boggling to me. Every time I see this movie or any movie like it, I'm like, what in the holy fuck are you people doing? Yeah. It's just, that's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, but, but that's, that's what they did. Uh, they made themselves very apparent targets and they wore really brightly colored clothing, uh, just so you wouldn't mistake them in the battlefield. So, um, yeah, you know, the guerrilla warfare, I mean, you, you see the, you see the impact of it, uh, that it had, it, it really, it made people very cautious. They started to put more people in their convoys because of these potential attacks. And they were very cautious of when and where their convoys went. And it was, you know, interrupting supplies and and that kind of stuff. And that's how they got a lot of their supplies. They were, you know, stealing things from the British when, when they would, when they would capture these things. And, um, you know, this this small squad kind of, uh, kind of tactics in these certain areas. And they could basically pick the time and location that they would that they would do these things in, and so that's kind of then where the he kind of transcended his his uh, his moniker, you know, from from being the hero of Fort Wilderness to now being the ghost. Yeah, and and to an extent, the British command almost wasn't even believing that he was there or that he was that much of a threat. I mean, the the first conversation that happened with Cornwallis about him was he's like just. Don't worry about it. This is not a thing. It's not an issue. Yeah. Yeah. We, he chastises Tavington for believing in ghost stories. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think this is the, the movie portrays greatly this, uh, asymmetrical warfare that was maybe not widespread, but very, very effective in, in terms of the, the concept of rather, rather than going force on force in an open field, which is, what you, you hear Benjamin uh, kind of talk trash about Horatio Gates mm-hmm. for using the British style of fighting, uh, one that the American army largely is not suited for. Right. And instead, he's he has this concept of asymmetrical warfare. Well, why don't mm-hmm. we we can't necessarily match up and go toe to toe against a British light infantry regiment backed by artillery and cavalry? Well, how about a supply train or another soft target. And I love the, 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 the montage of, of sort of scenes, just real quick cutting scenes of them amb- ambushing those exact targets. Yeah. Um, kind of early on after the m- militia forms. I also think of this movie as ham fisted as it handles some of the aspects of it, the recruiting scene at the, the pub and it starts out with a hilarious <laughs> moment where God save the uh, king. And I, I'm stealing one from the funniest moments. 
<laughs> Benjamin walks into this like raucous tavern and goes, you know, God save the king. <laughs> <laughs> you might as well have had like a record scratch and uh, everybody starts like you know getting up in arms and a knife goes into the door and he's like mm-hmm. oh, we found the right place and then they're signing up the south carolina militia and my favorite part in all that is uh i forget the character's name but his little red-headed son is like he steps up to the plate or to the table, and he goes, uh, I'm ready to kill some British. Oh, yeah, yeah. Benjamin's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sure you would. Yep, yep. Uh, but yeah, and so you see the formation of this sort of this ragtag group. And I'll come back to the, when we get to military lingo, uh, the, the, the modern day connections to the militia. But it's it's a good scene that establishes these characters and and sort of sets up their arcs. And, and I think, you know, that these scenes early on, this montage and the recruiting scene go a long way to gelling this group. Yeah. Uh, so that by the, the time Calpins ro- rolls around, you actually care about what happens to these folks. Yeah. So we, we then kind of, as you mentioned, it, it kind of rolls from this montage of things. And then uh, Cornwallis was very dismissive, not only dismissive of, of, what essentially was kind of this myth of, of the ghost, but also uh, scolding Tavington for his, uh, for, for his, his methods and his tactics. Um, he, he was fighting a war in a very ungentlemanlike fashion uh, it is, it is not what the British would expect. And, and Cornwallis, not only didn't like it himself, but he was also uh, concerned about the impact the impact of it on, on, on him because this was happening within his command. And, uh, so he, he tried to kind of put Tavington in, in a box as it were. Uh, but Tavington was arguing, Hey, look, they're specifically targeting officers. That was a very ungentlemanly thing. Then the, the officers were practically regarded as non-combatants. You know, they, they, at the time didn't specifically target officers, but this is something that, uh, you know, that Benjamin knew in his tactics was a very effective thing. Uh, they were doing a lot of this, uh, you know, as you mentioned, pillaging of, of, of supplies and, and, and that kind of stuff. But then also Tavington was doing, um, you know, a lot of the burning of, of houses and, uh, capturing of people and executions and, and, and such, so there, there were a, a lot of, a lot of issues there. So then a lot of this goes, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you, I, I was going to say, this is one of the central thrusts of this movie and, and one that affects both sides, but it's, it's something that I'm, this movie would have been okay if it hadn't had this thread running through. Yeah. It. But I think it, it exists and persists as a good movie and a movie that I enjoy watching because it explores these themes because Tavington at his core is this guy who looks around him and sees everybody handcuffed by these, in his mind, archaic rules. Mm -hmm. You know, we're here to do one thing in his mind. It's to defeat the enemy, uh, to to crush them, achieve victory and move on. And he sees these like gentlemanly rules of war as nothing but handcuffs. Well, you know, why, why should I spare civilians when I can kill them to great effect on, uh, you know, 
the combatants, if I kill their families, which is a, a tactic that he uses toward the end, then it's going to either cause them to, to break apart or their moral or morale is going to uh, just kind of wither. Mm-hmm. And Cornwallis, I, I love their exchange when Cornwallis is chastising him because he's like, Cornwallis is like, I got it, right? I, I, I see where you're coming from, but this is not the way war is fought. Mm-hmm. And when this war is over we're going to reestablish commerce with the colonies. Yes. So you can't do what you're doing and expect us to, to, to effectively govern and maintain and rebuild relations after this. Right. Uh, the, the scorched earth mentality just isn't effective for that. And it's just such a, a great scene be- between this well put together and well to do Cornwallis and Tavington who, outwardly appears to be put together but is really just this savage kind of beast of a man but you see it on the other side too it's not something that the americans just are okay with yeah and and have no issues with there's that scene where they uh execute an ambush and a couple of the prison british well they're <laughs> they never get taken prisoner they try to surrender and they get executed and gabriel voice like protests he's like whoa these men were about to surrender and villain away is like well we'll never know <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know and yeah and ben is sort of like well you know okay we're not gonna he you see this because he's had his own conflict about this because he's been on the other side of the aisle kind of similar to tavington at fort wilderness mm-hmm. and he's like you know what from here on out we're we're giving full quarter yep we're taking prisoners i don't care what the british are doing and you talked about earlier Villanueva's like conflict with him, and I think part of it is interactions like this, where he Villanueva is like, "Why should we? The British don't pay attention to the rules. Right. Why should we?" Right. And Ben's like, "It's my order. You, uh, you either follow it or get out of here." Yeah. And he gets real pissed off. And I love the they later on in the movie he makes the comment like, "Well, maybe while you're not looking, I'll execute a few." <laughs> And they're sort of like, ha ha, oh, those silly French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of this really turns around when uh, Cornwallis is is kind of shamed into setting Tavington loose, um, where this this group led by uh, Benjamin ends up. Uh, they they get what they think is just a you know regular supply wagon. It ends up having some of the personal effects of Cornwallis in it as he's, you know, moving his headquarters from point A to point B uh, and also happens to have a couple of great Danes, which belong to Cornwallis. And uh, these dogs uh, took <laughs> considerably Jupiter well to, to, to Benjamin. And um, so we, you know, this, this basically evolves and, uh, I can't quite remember how the whole uh, you, Benjamin you being a, invited to meet with Cornwallis thing happens. Or I, no, well, I don't so they, know that he take, was even invited. Yeah, Tavington actually out tactics Benjamin, which is interesting because he plays by the rules, and he's a pretty damn good tactician. Mm-hmm. He creates this sort of multi-layered ambush and uh, captures probably nineteen. Oh yes, 18, yes, nineteen Americans. Yep, that's right. Cornwallis is holding them and, and is ready to execute mm-hmm. them because uh, he doesn't consider them to be POWs. And Ben rides in on a, with a white flag. Mm-hmm. And this is like my favorite scene in the movie. And you can 
you can judge me however you want for this, but as a as a JAG and as somebody who, like who's deeply entrenched in international law and the law of war, there's like nothing sweeter than watching uh, Cornwallis and Benjamin Martin sit down at a table uh, and kind of discuss the terms of this prisoner exchange. <laughs> ben Ben knowing full well that he's duping Cornwallis. Oh, it was all like, bullshit. Well, yeah, Cornwallis is like, uh, as the protesting officer, would you like to go first? And he's like, well, uh, unless you want to claim a grieved status. And he's like, yes, I would like to claim a grieved status. And I'm like, <laughs> give me more of this. This is an amazing exchange. <laughs> and he bitches about his like dogs and his missing coat. Yeah, he's got to wear this horse blanket. And uh, and so finally they they do the exchange, and there's just this like awesome moment where Tavington sees Benjamin and realizes what's going on and he just immediately pulls his sword and is ready to gut him yeah. and gets stopped by uh, one of the other British generals and he's like, you know, he came here under formal parlay, like you are not touching him. Yep, yep. And you see that playing out modern, uh, this isn't just like a vestige of the Revolutionary War. I mean, literally in the news yesterday or today, the, the president announced that he was uh, he had canceled a summit at Camp David with Taliban leaders. Uh, you know, it, it, this sort of thing happens again and again throughout history, but it just plays out so, so beautifully on screen here. Yeah, the 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 whole thing definitely works, and 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 it's great because you know even uh, uh, talking to Cornwallis in in this negotiation, he's like, well you know, let's do a prisoner exchange because I have a bunch of your officers. And Cornwallis is like, I- I'm not aware of any missing officers. <laughs> and he has, hands him the the telescope, the the the, the field glass, and says, yeah, hey, there, right, you know, right at this tree line at the top of that hill. And, he, and Cornwallis looks out and sees what he completely and fully believes are British yeah. officers. And he's like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, we should definitely do this prisoner exchange. Well, he's like, he's like what, what are their names? And he's like, well, there's nine lieutenants, three captains, two majors, like one very fat colonel yeah. who called me a cheeky fellow. Yes. And he's like, oh, okay, this story checks out. Yeah, yeah. And he totally buys it. And all they wear was basically scarecrows wearing uh, wearing red coats, um, yeah. which were, you know, probably half of which were probably from Cornwallis's uh, 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 supply wagon. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, so it ends up completely being a dupe, and 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 of, and of course, just before the uh, the the gate closes, Benjamin, you know, gives a whistle, and the two dogs run right out after him. After you know, after Cornwallis <laughs> thought that he had his dogs back, so yeah. I, that whole thing was very very comedic, but it was very poignant, and it had this is something that fully embarrassed Cornwallis, and so right after this, he calls Tavington in and says, "Go get him." You you yeah. you do what you do, uh, just make it happen, make this problem go away. And he away. goes, and he wastes no time. He goes right after the families. I mean, this is not. He's going to make this personal for the militiamen. Yeah, and for Martin, <clears throat> and so he goes to. And sorry, Adam Baldwin, you have to be the bad guy. But he goes to Adam <laughs> Baldwin's character, uh, and gets information pretty much immediately on where Martin's family is holed up with his sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's that great scene where they, they come into the house with torches and uh, the, the family sneaking out and his son, uh, one of his sons is up under the kitchen table or the oh, dining room yeah, table. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep. 
And uh, so he's unsuccessful killing them, but he does track down. This is like a gut wrenching scene now that I have a daughter of my own. But uh, one of his other men, actually, that the the soldier who was in that scene at the tavern with his little curly haired redhead son, yes. he finds his son and daughter dead, and ends up killing himself in front of the men. Yep. And that sort of puts a fine point on just how brutal and effective these tactics are. Yeah. And so then this uh, this whole tear of Tavington's kind of culminates in uh, we we didn't talk about Gabriel getting married. He he kind of had this uh, courtship with a, a girl that he had known since childhood, and they end up in the midst of this getting married. And um, so Anne's hometown also had a a number of family members of uh, those fighting for or at least sympathizing uh, for the the colonial military effort here. And uh, so Tavington uh, goes there with his group and uh, gets them all in the church and locks the church doors and torches the church and uh, and, and burns them all alive. And uh, so at, at one point, Benjamin and his gang end up, uh, you know, basically the day after, go there for what they end up thinking is just simply a bit of respite. And, uh, you know, there's there's no one around. And they find the the church burned, and then they realize that you know everyone in there had had died. And yeah, you um, just get that tight shot of that that lock and chain on the the church doors. It's yeah. all you know burned, uh, and you know exactly. It, it's like it hits them right then and there. What happened? Where all the missing people are? Yeah, and and th- this is the thing that really I think seals the deal. I mean, this is the thing that that turns you know Gabriel wants nothing but revenge. And Benjamin kind of can't deny him that, you know, he, he similarly wants it. He, he sees the pain in that his son is going through and, um, you know, he had accepted Anne as, as being his daughter-in-law. And so he's also gutted by this whole thing. And so then it ends up setting up this, uh, what they thought was going to be a, an ambush on another, I think, uh, supply wagon but it really ended up was uh tavington baiting this group and so they really ambushed uh the colonials and so then the skirmish happens kind of on the edge of this wooded area and and this field uh which ends up being devastating i mean damn near everyone dies even the poor uh the, the the poor pastor gets killed yeah yeah, I had to. I actually kind of laughed at that scene because he's like dying in slow mo, and Marissa is beside me. And she's oh, the like, rifle when he throws get it, the get his musket. Yeah, he throws he's the musket like, up. <laughs> <laughs> he just chucks it. <laughs> it's like last like breath of strength, uh, but it ultimately doesn't matter for Gabriel. Sadly, yeah, no. So I, it, Gabriel actually has Tavington down. Tavington is, is, is injured. And, uh, what was it that made him him hesitate? So he wings him and he's, he's like kind of doubled over. He's on the ground, uh, on his stomach. And then Gabriel decides to go for sort of the vicious final kill with a knife. And, uh, that's where right as he gets within range, Tavington kind of spins around with a bayonet and, gets him right in the chest yeah yeah and so, now, and so then that and in uh, uh 
Benjamin basically witnesses this whole thing happen. Yeah, he's down to five kids now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now he can count all of his Sorry, kids on one hand. Um, yeah. <laughs> I turned to Marissa and I was like, "Look, he's got five more left." And then, you know, if he marries Charlotte, then he'll be he'll be good to go. Just, <laughs> I got punched for that one. I still have the bruise from the comment. Come on, that's there's. I I I, I don't know. I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. So this whole thing ends up wrapping up. Um, gosh, it, it, is there any detail? I, I, essentially, what happened with Benjamin after this whole thing, before Cowpens occurs? What, what's what's in this what's in this gap that I'm missing here? Because I know I'm missing something. No, I think um, it, it really rotates over, and they've got this culminating battle coming up. I don't recall anything significant happening. My favorite scene in the lead up to the battle is Villanueva, the French officer, coming out of his tent in full regalia. Mm. And Martin sort of looks at him and he's like, what? If I'm going to die, I'm going to die looking good, like well dressed. (laughs) (laughs) Like, all right, touche. But yeah, so the the final battle is loosely, I would say very, very loosely based on the Battle of Calpens, Mm -hmm. which was fought in northwest uh, South Carolina in a town called Cowpens, as you can probably imagine. Mm-hmm. It's probably, eh, I, I wouldn't say equidistant, but between Greenville, which is probably the largest town in South, or in northwestern um, South Carolina, along with Spartanburg, and Charlotte, North Carolina. So it's you know basically all, along the road in between those towns. But it was sort of a pivotal battle between the British and the Americans, uh, regarded as one of the turning points in the Southern campaign that sort of swung the momentum back in the Americans' favor. Interestingly, I, I, my Revolutionary War history is a little fuzzy, but I don't think that uh, Cornwallis had any role. I don't think he was even at Calpens. Hmm. Uh, Tar- Tarleton, I believe, was the British commander okay. of the forces there. He would have fallen under uh, Cornwallis, I guess, in the broadest sense. Right. But uh, Cornwallis was not on the field. Uh, and objectively, I mean, this is not like a Gettysburg-sized battle. I mean, you've, I'm looking up the numbers now, and you've got um, pretty modest strength on both sides. Less than uh, 2,000 people, uh, 2,000 soldiers on both sides, but pretty heavy casualty numbers on the British side. Yeah. I think out of this battle, what I appreciate most uh, in every viewing is the POV shot of the cannonball. As as the cannonball completely rips through the colonial army, uh, you know, bouncing along the ground and just like ripping legs off of people and stuff. That's uh, that's that's pretty fantastic. I, I, and that that was accurate, um, especially at Calpens. So the the British rarely used anything larger than a six pounder just because cannons are heavy mm-hmm. and the roads in America suck. And you're, you got to think you're drawing these things or pulling these things along by horse. And it doesn't take much for a large heavy cannon to just get completely stuck. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. at Calpens in particular, they use these smaller sort of anti-infantry cannons, like grasshoppers, I think they were called, mm. but the, the nickname came this round shot would bounce and it would take out take out limbs yeah. and so as gruesome as it is to see i mean that was a common tactic that was used 
with these smaller cannons. Um, I just this this scene has like some of the most like red blooded. I would call it like the the army uh, sort of slang word is hua. So it's like <laughs> hua is used to de- describe just about anything. But like I would call it like like fake bravado, like either bravado or, or like fake bravado. Like oh, that's really hua. That's a really hua thing to do. Yeah. Like yeah. the the moment where uh, machismo. Two, 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 yeah, pure machismo. Two moments. One, the American line is breaking, and Benjamin just snatches the American flag and starts waving it, yeah. and all the the American uh, troops like see this flag and they're like, "Oh hell yeah, let's get back to it!" <laughs> and they start fighting again. Forget, forget about and limbs then, being torn off. Let's do this. Yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah, I, that flag looks cool. Yeah, and that's a cool guy waving it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the second moment is uh, Tavington is sort of slashed bend down it looks like he's defeated and he's got this slow motion like platoon moment where he kind of goes onto his knees and you see all the american forces rushing up around him and this american flag in the sunlight like running forward in slow motion oh yeah it's like it's like a commercial for america right there yeah yeah the the the, the visuals (laughs) of it were pretty much over the top and 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 of course the the whole thing i love it though it's awesome it it is it is but and and the whole thing rounds off in a very very tropey like here's this giant battlefield and the two adversaries manage to find each other and they battle it out to the death and (laughs) You know, it's just, it's inevitable. I mean, you can find like any war movie epic and they all follow this trope. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it just, it happens all the time. So, you know, Martin ends up killing Tavington and, uh, and that's that, that's, that's pretty much where the, where the movie wraps up. I mean, there's, but it does do a good job. It sets it up earlier as, as Ben is leaving, uh, this prisoner exchange and Tavington Tavington's told to stand down because Ben has shown no aggression. He's like, mm-hmm. well, I'll make him show aggression. And so he goes up and he's like, oh, you were that farmer. Uh, I remember that day with that stupid little boy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you know, most times doing your duty is just, you know, whatever. But sometimes you take real pleasure from mm-hmm. it. And Ben sort of steps forward and he's like, before this war is over, I will kill you. And then it brings it full circle in this scene. That's called foreshadowing, it's trophy, folks. but it's so sweet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it's such a sweet... You know it's coming, but it's such a sweet payoff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tavington is like, I guess you're not the better man. And then he does this, like, Matrix-style duck of his sword. <laughs> <laughs> and then rams him through. The best part of that is not his actual death, because that's, that's a sweet payoff. But it's the fact that he dismounts him with from the horse with the American flag. He, like... <laughs> run oh, the yeah, flag yeah. up into Tavington's horse and drops him with it. Yep. Yeah, like like uh, <laughs> uh you know, like 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 a knight fighting with a um what the hell do they call those? The like the banner or like a joust. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Like jousting. That's yeah. The only thing that would have made it like more on the nose is for him to kill him with the American flag just like gotcha. <laughs> And and then he takes a bayonet and sticks it through his neck, so it's okay, I guess. And then shoving one of his uh, son's little lead toy soldiers in his mouth and making him choke on it or something, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. So, I mean, there there was some goofy, over the top stuff in this, um, but you know, all in all, a pretty good movie. Um, 
a, a little long, a little long, but, but there were some, there were some good scenes in it. Um, gosh, I, I think we covered a lot of the, uh, the funny. So, so one of the opening scenes in this is or actually, I think the opening scene is he's trying to, he's in his barn trying to make a rocking chair and, and the rocking chair, uh, it, it collapses underneath him. And then where was it that he finds a great rocking chair? Was that Cornwall- Cornwallis's place? He's like dicking around in his office. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's and he sits down and he leans back and he he looks he's like admiring the rocking chair, like, oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> right. And he's like looking at the whole design of it and the structure. Yeah. Uh you know, so that that was kind of a nice uh, nice call back to that. Uh the, the Great Danes obviously was a, a terrific thread, I thought, going through the whole thing. Um, I love it when they're like discussing eating the dogs and one of the soldiers is like, dogs? And he's like, oh, dogs are a fine. <laughs> and then it cuts and they're having a party and cooking food and you're like, oh shit, they killed the dogs. And then you see the dogs yeah. alive yep. and well. Yep. Yeah. So there's, there, there, there were definitely some, some notable things. There, there's this, this bundling bag thing, which I was not at all familiar with before ever seeing this movie. But I guess the, the bundling bags were like a traditional kind of courtship thing that that would, uh, uh, like, if you were having a sleepover, and you know, a a, a you know, good old fashioned boyfriend girlfriend sleepover, but uh, you didn't want any excessive hanky panky. You would actually sew the the quarter uh, into basically a sleeping bag. Which makes me wonder about, you know, I mean, it inevitably happens that like four o'clock in the morning or so, you got to get up and take a leak. I, this this is just terribly inconvenient. When, and Anne's mother makes the comment because her dad is listening on the door. Oh, yeah. And she makes the comment. She's like, don't worry, nothing's going to happen. I'm a very good seamstress or a very good sewer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of have to cock your head like, what? So yeah, that that was a thing um, between Gabriel we and, and about the Anne. God save the king. Yes, moment in the bar. Yeah, uh, that was fantastic. I love the moment where they're having this ball, and Cornwallis is just pissed off because the whole campaign is delayed, and they're fitting him for this coat. And this officer comes in; he's like so proud that he's sewn all this fancy stuff onto this coat. And he's like, well, it's still a horse blanket. And they're like, yeah, but it's like really nice. He's like, okay, so it's a nice horse blanket, but I should have my officer's coat. <laughs> yes. And then his whole focus, this supply ship comes in, and he's annoyed at Tavington for wanting to offload the actual military supplies as opposed to his coat so he doesn't have to wear this horse blanket yes. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, proper British decorum. He was he was rather obsessed with, with uh making sure that he had the right the right jacket. And then what we didn't even mention like he has this party at, at at his his headquarters and yeah. his ship is like you know anchored right right off of where the 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 mansion is, and they're talking about it, and all of a sudden in the middle of the party the ship explodes, uh, yeah. through a, a a bit of uh, uh, sabotage from uh, from Martin's men. <laughs> so I and and that was another embarrassing moment for for Cornwallis. I mean that's just another oh, thing fireworks. that yeah oh yeah yeah the woman was hilarious. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and and so yeah, another embarrassing moment for Cornwallis, who who again this this very proper British decorum, and 
you know, he, he doesn't have the clothes he wants. His, his dogs are taken away from him. He's fooled with the whole officer exchange. His, his ship, you know, more just outside of his mansion is blown up in a, you know, during a party where it's, you know, all these people witness it. So, I mean, he's just constantly embarrassed by this guy. And and that's when he sends, uh, sets Tavington loose. So, yeah. Um, they, they, they did kind of apply a lot of pressure through all these little vignettes throughout the movie with it. Yeah. So there wasn't a ton of military lingo. This is just a different breed of movie given the era of it, but there were just a couple things. I mentioned the six pounder. So we talked about that, that when you hear six pounder, three pounder, 10 pounder, that's literally just the weight of the cannonball. Mm-hmm. So the larger the weight, obviously the, the bigger range the bigger impact it's going to have um one of the things that you see they don't really get into it a ton you hear this this difference between militia and regulars and Mm -hmm. in particular uh cornwallis has this disdain for militia he just you know compared to regular soldiers he he thinks they're sloppy and just uh you know ill-organized and whatnot Mm -hmm. well those differences persist to this day, just in, in terms of militia versus regular army. The militia that you see here, it's, it's just a local South Carolina militia. But every state has maintained that sort of small military force, and it's known today as the National Guard. Mm-hmm. And it got its roots before the, the Continental Army ever existed. Uh, so if you if you have a National Guard unit near you, odds are it's probably, depending on what state you're in, it, it may be older than most U.S. Army uh, units. Yep. They are the the only National Guard you have is Army and Air Force. So there's no Marine National Guard or Navy National Guard, um, but they are state troops. They are uh, the the short title form is is. Uh, Title what is it, Title 32 yep. troops as opposed to federal troops, which are Title 10 troops. Correct. Um, but they are under the control of the state governor. So uh, you've seen this play out sort of recently along the border uh, where uh, federal troops are, are mobilized, active duty troops or, or reservists are mobilized to go you know, on some border mission, hey, repair a fence or do this or that. And a state governor actually pulls back Mm-hmm. state troops and that's perfectly legal the governor is the commander-in-chief of those soldiers yep. unless they are called to federal service right. and the birthplace was in the really before the revolutionary war but they they really kind of got their chops in the american revolution and they persist to this day and the the regular army that both the reserve and the active duty remain federal troops so the the president is the commander-in-chief there and states exercise no control over a reserve unit even one that that sits within their borders so it's an interesting difference uh and and i should the the last point i'll make on that is uh national guard versus reserve a big difference in the types of units you'll see is that uh national guard units are typically combat arms or combat support so your infantry units uh, artillery, uh, combat aviation units, those are all National Guard units, uh, whereas the reserve are going to be more your combat support or combat service support. Mm-hmm. So medical units, uh, logistical units, uh, JAG like myself, that sort of thing. So uh, if if you talk to somebody who's doing it part-time in their combat arms, 
like an infantryman or a, a artilleryman, the odds are that they're going to be National Guard and not a reservist. Yeah. Um, the other two I'll talk just very briefly about. We talk rules of war. This is something that the things like rules of engagement, the law of armed conflict, this stuff has been, these rules, this body of law and, and customs have been built over a millennium. Uh, millennia and including in conflicts like the revolutionary war i mean it it oftentimes takes a war like this to shape these rules um so i you know won't belabor the point but i really love how it's portrayed in this movie and then the last one is uh prisoner of war and i may have talked about this before but the 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 term is not what's important, but it's it's actually important to understand that it's a status and a really important status. Just because you're captured on a battlefield by the enemy doesn't mean that you're automatically granted or considered a prisoner of war. And it's a really important distinction because a POW gets a whole host of protections under international law that are like very robust and they're very seriously uh, taken and considered. So, if you're a, if you've got POW status, I mean, it is a it's serious business. Uh, you see this play out in maybe some of the World War II movies a little more, um, but it's important because in this movie uh, you see and you hear Cornwallis during the prisoner exchange say that those 18 Americans that he captured, he doesn't consider them POWs. Right. So, in other words, he's not affording them any of the protections that might be otherwise accorded to a normal POW. And that's it for your know your military lingo for the Patriot. Great. Uh, there really wasn't a whole lot in terms of um, a lot of interesting tidbits and such with this. Um, a few things here kind of pulled off of the, uh, the IMDB uh, trivia spot here. I obviously, a, a there was a lot of firearms handling in this, so you had a lot of your uh, your your key actors going through some of uh, some some training in terms of, of how to do that. And uh, actually, the aim small, miss small thing came from uh, one of those firearms trainers, uh, someone by the name of Mark Baker, uh, when he was teaching Mel Gibson and Heath Ledger how to shoot. Uh, he had mentioned that, and so Gibson liked that line. He wanted to actually incorporate it into the film as well. Um, Heath Ledger, who is, uh, what's his national, what was his nationality? I, I actually don't know. I always assumed he was American, but that could be completely off. He might've been, he's actually from Gotham. His real character is the Joker now. So, that's 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 true. That's true. <laughs> that's all that matters. Uh, he's he was born in Perth, Australia. That's yeah. That's yeah, so right. he, okay. he's Australian. Oh. Uh, and so he he had remarked. Forgive me. <laughs> he he had remarked um, when working on on the film, uh, or basically the film answered his question of why Americans wave their flag so high. And he said it's it's from working on this film, he really got a good idea uh, of of the. Um, basically the work that went into um, building their country he said it's, it's because uh, they went to hell and back to build their country. So that was kind of a, a, a nice, um, you know, nice little bit of recognition, I guess. Uh, Heath Ledger did in fact perform a lot of his stunts uh, Aunt Charlotte's house. Uh, the, the one that uh, in the end got burned uh, was the same one using Forrest Gump with some slightly different interiors. 
So, uh, you know, a lot of houses. Did they really burn it down? Uh, probably not. <laughs> uh, it, it, a lot of houses, you know, it, you, you, you watch enough movies, you see enough TV shows, and especially for some of the places that have big enough backlots uh, like Universal or Warner Brothers, that kind of stuff, you see a lot of the same houses and facades and structures yeah. used over and over again. Um, and if anyone ever has a chance, it, not that it directly relates to, to this movie, but if you ever find yourself uh, in the L.A. area, definitely um, I, I, the, the Warner Brothers back lot to me is yes. the most fantastic tour yes. that you could possibly take. And you can tour a lot of the lots. The Warner Brothers lot is um, their tour, I think, is the longest. It's the most, yep. the most in-depth. I mean, you're actually they will walk you on two sets. They you know, let you walk back around through what's called the back lot, which is where all these like houses and structures are and stuff. And you're like, Oh my God, I recognize this house from this TV show and that one from this movie. And, 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 and they'll tell you about the history of a lot of these things. And it's a fantastic tour. You've, you've been Tom. Yeah, we went last January when we got out of the army, we, we eventually made our way to LA and took that tour and it was absolutely phenomenal. You may have recommended it to me. In fact, before I went on that, I can't remember, but uh, I might have, yeah. Yeah, it was really, really great. The you see the uh, you talk about houses that are reused. If you ever watch the Drew Carey show, so the outside of his house and sort of the carport is right there. It's been used in a thousand different things. Uh, just a ton. If you're a friend, uh, a fan of Friends, I you'll see more Friends sets there than or just like iconic locations from different episodes than you can even count. We went on the Big Bang set. Oh yeah, yep. Uh before it wrapped up. So yeah, they really get you involved and the tour guides are very good. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really cool stuff. It's amazing how much they shoot there cuz it's not just necessarily Warner Brothers movies that are shot there. True. So uh, there's DC movies that are shot there. I mean, they, they sort of like it's an extensive enough place that uh, film studios come there to shoot. Yes, yeah, a lot of them will contract to be able to to go there because of simply the extensive amount of resources that they have. Um, and, and I mean, and they bring out to sound stages, which are like really incredible. And it's just, it's neat to see how they do things. And you mentioned like the, the Big Bang set where all it is is generally three walls. Uh, and, and, you know, they film in front of a, filmed in front of a live audience. And so it's just like this, you know, here's the three walls of, of uh, um, you know, what was originally um, Sheldon and Leonard's apartment. And then here's Penny's apartment and here's the comic book store. And that and so like they have their regular sets that they do. And, and oh, yeah, there's it's a rabbit hole <laughs> that's, that yeah. we can go down for a while. Yeah, it's worth the, the couple hours that it takes. It's really fun. Yeah. Uh, so a couple more notes I wanted to bring up here. Uh, apparently the historical accuracy of the costumes and settings was overseen by the Smithsonian, uh, which is the first time that they were ever worked directly into the production of a movie, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, they had actual amputees who are cast to play soldiers who lost their limbs. Um, I think that's fantastic. I, I That's a really cool thing. I mean, there's a lot of ways with, uh, you know, wearing green spandexy kind of, things that they can edit limbs out. But, you know, I, I think it's great that they uh, actually engage a lot of amputees to, to do that. 
And uh, they said it was difficult uh, finding a swamp for filming, so the production actually rented out a botanical garden and flooded it. <laughs> so Why not? Yeah, yeah. Um, Harrison Ford declined the lead role uh, for Benjamin, feeling the script had boiled the Revolutionary War down to a one-man's-revenge melodrama. That's true. <laughs> you know what, Han Solo? It's okay. Because Mel Gibson took this and ran with it. Yep, yep. Uh, they had over 800 extras in the film. Uh, and the costume department created over 1,200 military outfits for the movie. So there's a, uh, a handful of, of trivia bits on the Patriot. So, um, Tom, anything left that you want to add before we close out? No, no, I've got to go raise a barn today, so and and I've got some crops that need to be brought in, so we're going to continue this cosplay uh, in character the rest of Sunday, <laughs> whether my family likes it or not. And and by God, <laughs> would you get that rocking chair right, please? Version 576 is the one that's going to make it. I just know. I'm confident. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So our next uh, episode is going to be uh, a movie called Beneath Hill 60. Uh, this was done in 2010. It's a rated R film, uh, and uh, it, it's a World War I movie. There really aren't a lot of World War I movies out there in a relative sense, uh, especially when we consider the whole plethora of stuff out there for World War II. Um, and uh, it's a movie that I watched very recently, mostly because my wife had said, basically just that fact hey there's not a lot of world war one stuff let's let's find a good movie uh and then uh before we started recording here tom brought it up and said do we know of a good world war one movie to do so uh, i brought this up and uh, just for those who might want to watch it before we get into it uh you can find beneath hill 60 on uh, amazon prime and on itunes so that's where that is. Uh, so certainly we appreciate any thoughts or feedback that you might have on this episode <coughs> on, uh, and on the Patreon. You can send us your feedback by way of email. Shoot us a note, dispatches at randomchatter.com. You can also find us online. On Twitter, the uh, main handle is at randomchatter. Tim, where can they find you? Uh, at Qui-Gon Tim. That's Tim with two M's. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas L. Harper. That's L as in Larry. You can find all of our shows at randomchatter.com, nicely and neatly organized. <laughs> Very true. We certainly appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us, uh, leaving us reviews, telling your friends, family members, coworkers about us. Uh, if you like the stuff that we're doing, you can support us uh, by way of Patreon, uh, which is financial contributions to the network that helps us do the things that we do. You can go to randomchatter.com slash Patreon. Uh, we also appreciate you joining us over on Discord. Uh, you can join us in our public lobby and our show channels for free. If you go to randomchatter.com slash Discord, uh, it's basically an online discussion forum, and we have a lot of really active and lively discussion going on there about uh, all sorts of the things that, that we cover on the network. And uh, any Patreon contribution actually gets you full access to our Discord community, which has dozens of channels uh, on all sorts of topics. Uh, you can also get uh, Random Chatter merchandise. If you go to randomchatter.com slash store, uh, we have a tea Public store set up, and you can get uh, T-shirts and hoodies and stickers and all sorts of stuff with our uh, classic Random Chatter uh, Chattering Teeth logo, as well as uh, a couple of other show logos. 
you know what? It just occurred to me that it slipped off my radar, but we need to get a... I need to get you that logo so that we can get our dispatches from the front yes. product up there. Yeah, yeah. So we are trying to do one for dispatches from the front. Um, our original logo was uh, very reflective of, of us being a Band of Brothers podcast solely because that was kind of our, our initial focus. Um, so we're going to try to genericize it a touch, but uh, still essentially fundamentally the 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 same logo. So now for everybody's favorite part, oh, the legal disclaimer. I can't wait. I mean, you've been waiting an hour for this. So I, you know, I hate to, to keep you guys waiting every episode for this. Maybe Tom, it's always worth maybe we front load this and put this in the beginning of every episode just to make sure that no one misses it. Yeah. But then what else is there to look forward to? <laughs> People would just turn us off. They would, you know, it's like having your dessert before dinner. It's just, it's never worth it. That's true. So, that being said, Dispatches from the Front is not endorsed by anyone affiliated with the films we discuss and is intended for entertainment purposes only. All names associated with and references to the films we discuss are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with those trademark or copyright holders. All original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media, unless otherwise indicated. And there we have it. There's your dessert. That was riveting. It gets you know, better have, every I'm time. I'm battling a sinus infection, so I probably sound like a cartoon character. So it's at least a little bit of flavor. <laughs> is this uh, officially con crud from Dragon Con? No, I had this before. This is baby crud. Oh, baby crud. Uh, okay. You know, version 677. Yeah. Because she's always bringing something new home from daycare. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, very good. All right, folks. Well, uh, thank you for joining us for our review of The Patriot. And uh, we will uh, catch you in our next episode, Beneath Hill 60. Take care. Adios. Adios.